we get to speak today to someone who is a longtime friend of mine, but she is so incredibly accomplished. And uh, I wanted you to meet her. She is a, uh, a PhD. She is a leader and a mentor uh, in our profession. She is now the author of a really exciting new book and so much more. Dr. Laura Bedard, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sarge. I appreciate you having me on. So, wow, let's get right into it because um, you, uh, you, boy, you have done it, done it all. And, uh, you know, you, one of the things about you is as accomplished as you are, you have spent decades sharing your knowledge and your ability to succeed with others. And I think that's one of the things that makes you so extraordinary. You have really been a mentor to so many, including me. And, uh, and I wanna talk about that. Now, let's talk about that in the context of you being Warden Bedard. Okay, well, thank you. I, you know, I learned that from people who mentored me, really. Good leadership is all about succession planning. It's preparing others to take our place. Um, and that was taught to me by mentors throughout my career. And so I try to pass that on to people with whom I work um, to provide them guidance. And that doesn't mean just guidance for their successes, but it also means sometimes allowing them to fail. You know, leadership and corrections is a lot like being a parent. Um, you know, you try to mentor and guide so that once they, they're they on their own, they can be successful. So that's what I've tried to do. And I've really tried to do it because I've had excellent mentors throughout my career. Now, Laura, you know, I, I spent 29 years putting people in jail. And quite frankly, until I met you, I never really thought about what happened to people after they went to jail or after they went to prison. And one of the things I learned from you many years ago was compassion for people. You know, cops always kind of think, well, you know, those people are lost. We're, we can't rehabilitate them. Um, in reality, that's not necessarily true. And especially in the realm of women's corrections, um, you've had some pretty incredible success rehabilitating people, haven't you? We have, you know, not everyone um, can be rehabilitated. And the, the challenge for us in the business is we don't know who can and who can't. So we have to provide opportunity for all. It's interesting that you say that because I think most street law enforcement officers don't understand the corrections piece. We are kind of the hidden aspect of the criminal justice system, but there are almost half a million certified uh, correctional officers in federal, state, and uh, county detention facilities across the country, managing over 2 million offenders in the United States. So it's a huge group of forgotten heroes. And the difference between law enforcement officers is cor and correctional officers is the people inside the walls don't have that, what I call a Batman belt to go to. Correctional officers have to use their intellect and their interpersonal communication skills first. So that said, I often suggest if someone wants to become a law enforcement officer and work on the street, that they start in a county jail or a state prison because it gives them that training in inter interpersonal communication skills that they might not get otherwise. 
You know, that's a great point because we talk so much in law enforcement training now about de-escalation and nobody can de-escalate a situation like a correctional officer, as, as I personally have seen time and time again, because, you know, they're in there in the mix. And, you know, I've got to say, you know, we've heard a lot in the last few years about um, prison should not be a business. You know, there should be no privatization of correctional institutions. And yet, as you've proven and as we've seen, the privatization of correctional institutions can make them so much more successful, can it? Absolutely. So I've had the, the honor really to work in county, state, uh, federal and private facilities throughout my career. I've managed seven correctional facilities, not because I can't keep a job, but because um, I think at some point I was seen as kind of the, the warden to go and initiate new projects and um, help facilities become better. Uh, and I've had great experiences with the private sector. Um, I've had great experiences with state facilities. A lot of it has to do with the character of the people who run the place, whether it's public or private. And it's interesting because the criticism historically for, our, for privatization of prisons has come from labor unions. Uh, nobody ever criticizes private schools. If you, if you look at it in that context, you know, we always think private schools are better than public schools. I don't know if that's true or not, but we don't give the same uh, weight to private prisons versus public prisons. Look, there are bad private prisons, there are bad public prisons, and there are good private and public prisons. So I've really been blessed with running great facilities with excellent people of strong character um, who were concerned about the inmate population. You know, way back in the 80s when I first started in this business, we used to say that corrections was about care, custody, and control. And I think those three C's still stand, but I think there are two more that need to be added. One is compassion and the other is community because most of these people are getting out and they're gonna come and be our neighbors and they're gonna be working at the stores and restaurants that we frequent. And if we don't provide them tools to become better, they're just gonna come out and continue to be criminal. So we have to provide those opportunities. When we talk about that aspect right there, compassion and community, what do you talk to other leaders about when it comes to managing that piece of your jail or prison population? You know, one of the things I, I say to all new employees and, and to, to my peers is we have to think of these people as if, as if they were my brother, as if they were my aunt, as if they were my sister because some of the people who get involved in corrections do so at no fault of their own. Now, I, I, I don't get me wrong, there are absolute predators out there who need to be taken off the street forever. But there are some people who are victims of circumstance. Um, I have a, a, had a, an inmate that I worked with for a while who was a victim of sexual abuse by his family at age four. And he is severely mentally ill. And he's in jail because he does stupid things. Um, he trespasses, he pees in public. He does things that he does public nuisance crimes. So they arrest him and bring him to jail because there are no other alternatives for him. So it's hard to punish somebody who really, it wasn't his fault at age four that he became victimized and it caused him severe psychological trauma. You know, our, our local 
jails and sometimes our prisons, are they becoming the new mental health parking lot for people who have no other alternative? We are the de facto mental institutions. When they deinstitutionalized the population after the Kennedy Initiative, um, you see a correlation between um, reduction in beds in state hospitals and an increase of mental health issues in jails and prisons. Um, I started my career in a state hospital. And when I walk in certain units of the current facility that I manage, it reminds me of, of 1978 state hospital. So we have done a disservice to the mental health population. We have not provided the resources necessary for them to live in the least restrictive environment in the community. It's really shameful. Yeah, it really is. And I, I hope we're able to, to switch, you know, change that back because we see that with our growing homeless problem, um, the, the drug addiction crisis, the mental illness crisis that we see on the streets of some of our largest cities and also in rural areas as well. And we don't seem to be getting a handle on how to help those folks achieve a more normal life. You're right, Sarge. And the, one of the problems is we've tied the hands of law enforcement. There's no place for them to bring these people except to jail. And that's not fair for them. You know, many of the officers that bring people through our back door at the county jail, they don't want to arrest the person, but they just don't have the pl any place to put them. There's no crisis center. There's no state hospital bed. Um, so they end up bringing them to jail. And then our staff have the challenge of, of managing them. And it's, it's a difficult task. It sure is. You know, when we look at the last uh, 21 months of the vilification of law enforcement, um, that correctional staff that you talk about, like you said, they're kind of behind the scenes, but how has this vilification affected them, not just physically, but emotionally? Great question. So they have suffered the same backlash. You know, Joe Citizen doesn't know the difference between in uniforms. He sees a uniform, he sees cop, he, 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 or, he or she thinks defund the police. So they don't, people don't know the difference. And certainly our profession has suffered um, similar things as the roadside. We have issues with recruiting, issues with retention. Um, there was a bit of shame among some of our staff members, you know, and I want them to be proud of what they do. It's a difficult job. They're, they're touching human lives every day, not be ashamed because the media has put this narrative out that we need to defund the police. So it has had an impact on the corrections profession for sure. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a very difficult, um, balance that I would imagine correctional officers are, are, you know, they're trying to walk that line. And, and it is also, it's a dangerous job. You know, when you go to the Officer Down Memorial page and you see the correctional officers that have sacrificed, given the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty, um, again, it's pretty extraordinary because like you said, they don't have that Batman belt so they're very often just in a hands-on fight for their life um, inside that institution. And sometimes it's deadly, isn't it? It is, it can be, it is a very dangerous job, an important but dangerous job. So you're, uh, you got your PhD. Um, when you did that, 
do people say, oh, geez, you know, you work in, you work in corrections. What do you need a PhD for? What, what was the thought process there? So I actually got my PhD while I was working at a university and PhDs at a university are a dime a dozen. So I just felt <laughs> like I, ne I needed to be part of the pack there. Um, it was a great lesson in tenacity, if nothing else. Uh, and then I went back into corrections. So I started in corrections, then went to the academic world and then came back to corrections. And I think, um, you know, the, the process of getting an advanced degree, if nothing else, proves that you can do it and gives you the skill set to look for information. So I'm happy to say I, I run a data-driven facility here. We keep data. We look at evidence-based programs. We review our data. I hired the first statistician for our um, our county facility here, and he tracks everything. We track who comes in, why they come in, who's suicidal, what programs are working, what treatments uh, are effective. So um, I think that would not have happened had I not had an advanced degree. I think that's fantastic. And I know one of the other things that you've done over the years is, is you share that knowledge with others. And you're not afraid to say things like, men and women are different and should be treated differently in a correctional situation. Talk about that for a minute. So they should, you know, for so long in this profession, we just painted programs pink and made it a woman's program. You know, we, um, we didn't really look at the different needs uh, that the genders have and they do have different needs. I am probably one of the few corrections professionals who prefers working with the female population. And I prefer it because I have found in my career, they are like sponges. They want to learn and they impact, in my opinion, they impact more people because they're usually the primary caregiver of the child. When they come to jail or prison, it has a just a terrible effect on the family unit. Not that the male doesn't, but the female seems a little more impactful. So if we can help the women um, rehabilitate or habilitate uh, themselves and get back into the workforce and um, learn how to be a parent, then we're, we're really helping society in general. How um, prevalent is uh, getting an education in a correctional facility? Because I've heard people say, well, you know, I can't afford to send my kid to college. Why should this person go to jail or prison and um, be able to get an education? Talk about that. Yeah, so most prisons don't have college options still. Pell Grants were taken away, I think, in the 80s for uh, people who are incarcerated. Most of them do have, however, basic adult education, high school diplomas or GED equivalents. And vocational training, um, I think, is really important for the incarcerated population. It fills a niche that we need as a society. Um, and if you can provide vocational training inside, we know if people have jobs and they have housing, once they're released, they have a much better chance of staying out. I guess as a law enforcement officer, one of the things I've experienced um, is just more of a sincerity in a lot of women that I've taken into custody to better their lives. And, and I know in, in at least my experience, so many of the women I arrested who had committed crimes, like you said, when you go back, they were actually crime victims first. Sure, women, it is, it, it, there is evidence that women have, take different pathways to crime. Most victims have, uh, most female offenders have childhood trauma. 
Um, and most were arrested with a male counterpart, which is interesting because not all males are arrested with females, but almost all females are arrested with a male counterpart. So they have higher rates of mental health uh, issues. They, they utilize the medical and mental health system in jails and prisons much more frequently than the male population does. So we do see that. Um, we do see that they have different needs and different pathways to crime. So I got to take a look at your career right now because you, you're incredibly busy, um, but you decided, oh, you know, I need one more thing to do. I think I'll write a book. <laughs> I don't even know when you got time to do that. Um, but talk about the book. So the book is called, What Do I Wear to the Execution? And I've actually been working on it for almost 20 years. Um, because things would happen inside the walls of the correctional facility. And I'd say to myself, people would never believe this story if I told it at a party, you know, they just wouldn't believe it. So I started jotting down the stories and um, eventually ended up putting, putting it into this uh, fictional story of uh, a woman who works her way into the correctional system. So give me a little bit of the plot. Cause I, first of all, I'm thinking, uh, this needs to be a movie because it just sounds so fun. Um, so I want to hear about the plot. Then I want to hear who you think should play you. Oh, goodness. Well, the book starts and ends, starts and ends with the execution of a fictitious character named William Bell. And the main character, Sarah, she goes back in time, um, kind of reflecting at the execution, why she got into the business of corrections. And she talks about her brother who suffered from mental illness and ended up killing himself. And I think she realizes, has an epiphany and realizes that that is the reason why she um, got into the career of correction. So this is gonna be absolutely uh, fantastic. Where can people find the book? So the book's available on Amazon, both in Kindle form and in paperback. Uh, and uh, I look forward to getting feedback. So far, um, it's interesting because people who know me, um, you know, they, they recognize perhaps some characters and, and some stories, so, but it is fiction. Right, right, That's, that is going to be fantastic. So moving forward, you know, we're in a, um, we're in a difficult time in this country where the criminal justice system continues to be under attack, um, law enforcement continues to be under attack. Where do you see us going from here when it comes to our correctional institutions and their role in fixing our crazy society that, that we see becomes more and more dangerous all the time? Well, I've seen this this profession evolve really since 1982. Um, again, it's it's we used to not even talk to inmates in the beginning, and now we understand that there are certain um, circumstances that led them to where they are. Look, our criminal justice system has flaws, but it is the best in the world. There's no question about that. And our men and women on the street, and our men and women inside the walls of of federal, state, and county correctional facilities should be admired, not, not vilified. Um, I don't know where we got, how we got here, 
but it seems like we're in a society now with lack of respect for everybody, not just cops and correctional officers, but everybody. We need to get back on track, get back to the fundamentals of what makes this a great country. And this is a great country. So I think that corrections is continuing to evolve and um, becoming more professional. There are groups out there like the American Jail Association and the American Correctional Association who provide leadership training and guidance and mentoring to um, new staff members and, and new uh, administrators of those facilities. So I see us moving in a positive direction. Um, and I hope that society gets on board and understands the difficult job that both sides of the house do. I have always seen a great desire to help not harm those who are incarcerated. Have you, what have you seen? Absolutely. I mean, we have to do that because most people who are incarcerated are getting out, as I said earlier. So if we don't provide at least some tools for them to improve their stance, their circumstance, then they're just going to come right back. So uh, we have to provide. Yes. Yeah, you are so right about that. And I, I really see our justice system as doing so much more good than harm, especially when it comes to um, our correctional uh, agencies and our brothers and sisters in corrections. If a young person, and I bet this happens all the time, comes to you and says, I'm thinking about going into the correctional side of law enforcement, what do you tell them? Come on in. We need good people. We need people who want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's the opportunity that Corrections provides. That's fantastic. Dr. Laura Bedard, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? So the book's available on Amazon. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. So please look me up. I appreciate your support. And thanks, thanks so much for having me on. What do I wear to the execution? I cannot wait to read it. Dr. Laura Bedard, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.